Hi, and welcome to the Computer Architecture Podcast, a show that brings you closer to cutting-edge work in computer architecture and the remarkable people behind it. We are your hosts. I'm Suvinay Subramanian. And I'm Lisa Shu. Our guest on this episode was Dr. Gabriel Lowe, who's a senior fellow at AMD Research and Advanced Development. Gabe has had roles on both sides of the industry-academic divide, having also been a tenured associate professor in the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. Dr. Lowe is known for his contributions to 3D die-stacked architectures, memory organization and caching techniques, and chiplet multi-core architectures. His ideas on these topics have influenced multiple commercial products and industry standards. Additionally, he is a recipient of ACM SIGARC's Maurice Wilkes Award. He is a Hall of Fame member for Micro, HPCA, and ISCA, and he's a recipient of the NSF Career Award. And to pile on top of that, He's a co-inventor on over 100 U.S. patents. We were lucky enough to snag him for a conversation about system design for large and complicated systems like the Exascale project at AMD. We also discussed memory technologies, navigating Amdahl's law in the age of accelerators, and he dropped some unconventional wisdom about how it can be great to be wrong and when imposter syndrome can be a good thing. Before we get to the interview, a quick disclaimer that all views shared on this show are the opinions of individuals and do not reflect the views of the organizations they work for. And with that, let's get right to it. Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you. Um, so listeners to the podcast know that our first question is almost always, um, what's getting you up in the morning these days? Well, there's the technical and non-technical answers. You know, the non-technical is just the kids and getting one off to school. Uh, technical these days, I've actually switched a little bit full circle. I'm working on CPU microarchitecture, which is where I started my PhD career before going off on a smattering of all kinds of other topics. But it's kind of fun. It's, you know, we're back to where we started. And while for, I think, a lot of the academic circles, traditional CPU microarchitecture may not have the same uh, you know, flair and uh, it's not quite the, the hot topic uh, for some folks. It's still a critically important uh, aspect to you know everything we do. There's a CPU, it's still the central processing unit, even in our larger heterogeneous systems. And, you know, Amdahl's law uh, doesn't go away even in the world of you know, highly accelerated heterogeneous systems. And so we still need to keep pushing that, you know, CPU performance uh, further and further in, you know, tighter power constraints. So there's a lot of you know, exciting challenges there. It's it's fun to get back to it. That sounds super fun. Um, yeah, I mean, microarchitecture is usually what makes all of us computer architects attracted to the field in the first place. Um, and so there there are some people who would argue, though, that, you know, at this point, we shouldn't be focusing on, I mean, you know, the age old debate, right? We, sh- we don't need to focus on microarchitecture. We should be focusing on things like, you know, the network or whatever. Um, And so what kind of problems are you guys at AMD trying to solve that sort of necessitates digging really deep into the microarchitecture at this point? Yeah, to be fair or, you know, uh, complete, it's, you know, microarchitecture, you know, CPU microarchitecture is not the only thing that, you know, AMD is focusing on, right? This is kind of the area of, you know, what I'm, you know, what gets me up in the morning, what I'm currently working on. But, you know, we've entered a world where, you know, there are no more, you know, there's no more low-hanging fruit or there's no single bottleneck that needs to be solved. You know, all of the easy problems you know, none of them have ever been easy, let's be honest, but, you know, the easy-ish problems have been picked clean 
and we need efforts on all fronts. And so, you know, there are accelerators, there's the software, there's, and then even software is a gigantic, you know, massive, you know, both from applications down to the runtimes, compilers, tools, firmware, et cetera. And modern computer systems are incredibly complex and you need all the parts working, you know, together efficiently. If one part, you know, isn't really doing its job or is you know, out of sync with the rest of the design, you can give up, you know, efficiency gains with this performance, power, cost, et cetera. You know, I think all of these areas are, are critically important. You know, we have to focus on the microarchitecture. We have to focus on accelerators and new domain-specific approaches. Accelerators themselves, right, they're not really general purpose, right? The whole reason why you can accelerate things is that you're doing them in an application-specific manner, right? There's something about the domain, about the workload, that you can take advantage of to do something you know more efficiently more effectively and that's where you get the performance power enhancements it's sort of almost an, an oxymoron right to have a general purpose application specific accelerator <laughs> All right but the you know what, what goes along with that is that you know no accelerator design is going to solve the world right we're just going to solve all of our problems right it's going to solve a subset of our problems it's going to provide some you know great enhancements in the subset of problems but what do you do for all of the other problems that you know we still have uh, computationally or, or more broadly socially, whatever. And so we need, you know, I think we're headed in the direction already of you know increasing heterogeneity. Or right? you look at the number of accelerators in you know mobile phones and things of that sort already. Uh, they're incredibly heterogeneous with many different functions specialized for different tasks. And you know, you get fantastic uh, gains in efficiency in that fashion. But what you also look at is the corresponding software ecosystem that goes with the phones and you know, across, again, all, all the different layers. It's not just writing uh, you know, apps for your app store or whatever, but you know, all the way down to how the manufacturers have to you know, put it together, all this IP and the overall methodologies. There's you know, a lot of infrastructure and you know, all of this has to come together. Um, and so you know, the Muck architecture, you know, I think given my background and the things I've done is you know, certainly something you know, very interesting. As you said, I think it's, uh, a very interesting topic for many folks that start off on the journey of uh, computer architecture, you know, basic, you know, how does a pipeline work? How does a cache work? And, and those things are so important, right? There's been kind of you know, these old jokes about how everything in computer architecture comes down to like you know, three, four, five concepts. It's like you know, pipeline and caching, speculation. I think there's, there's a couple more, right? Um, but those things, you know, still matter and there's still opportunities to continue to improve and refine them. I think what's also really exciting is the, you know, we, we used to, you know, traditionally work a little bit more in silos or, you know, kind of within our own layers of uh, the abstraction stack, right? Everyone who's taken an introductory, you know, computer organization course has seen, you know, one of these figures starting from the devices all the way up to the application with a bunch of horizontal lines in between, right? And I think, you know, these days, while, you know, People talking about working across the stack and interdisciplinary research, you know, the, the buzzwords have been tossed around for, for many years. But I think we're seeing a lot more of that, you know, put into practice. You know, a lot more people are talking and thinking across the layers. And that's opening up a lot of new opportunities, you know, for the microarchitecture, but for uh, the, the architecture, the ISA and, and everything above. And so, yeah, our problems, our challenges are, you know, getting tougher, but at the same time, there's, you know, just seeing lots of new ideas uh, every day. I mean, you look at these computer architecture conferences and the number of papers that are, you know, being published and the, the creativity and innovation that you're seeing across these works, you know, from academia, from industry, from 
uh, government labs, you know, all manner of folks are contributing you know, great ideas and you know, we, we need it all because problems are just getting harder. Great. Thanks a lot for that really good context to our listeners. Um, you know, while we do currently live in the age of accelerators and you know, the shift towards heterogeneous computing, it's very important to realize that system balance is very important. And as you mentioned, there's no one silver bullet solution that's going to fix all of your performance bottlenecks, especially if you care about end-to-end -end performance. Uh, I want to pick up on a couple of themes that you mentioned. So you talked about how you're no longer sort of working in silos and there's a greater need and greater demand to sort of work across different layers of the stack. So I wanted to pick your brain on what are some of the themes that have sort of piqued your curiosity in this particular realm. You know, uh, you know, we have a confluence of multiple trends like emerging workloads, emerging technologies, you know, emerging architectural themes like heterogeneity, you know, uh, different software stacks and so on. So uh, what are some themes here that have piqued your curiosity? How do you think about working cross stack uh, in, in the current age? I think one of the big challenges as well as, you know, I think big opportunities is, you know, where to rethink interfaces uh, as well as where not to mess with things that work perhaps, right? I mean, what, what is the right way, uh, especially as we get into high levels of heterogeneity and there's heterogeneity at different layers of the stack, the risks for kind of dealing with combinatorial explosion of how these different things interact with each other becomes, uh, you know, it's, it's a potential, issue that we're going to have to you know collectively deal with if you've got you know, just all these different combinations of hardware you know how are they all going to communicate with each other how do you design those interfaces that remain efficient to you know those different needs while you know, not becoming you, know, you don't want to be overburdened right because if you want to have a, a master interface that could talk to everything and everyone it's probably going to end up not being a, as efficient, right? And so, what's that right balance, right? And that I think there's a lot of work to be done in understanding the the trade-offs. You know, there's going to be some science and probably a little art to it as well. Um, you know, drawing upon past lessons of you know where where things have you know worked well, different standards and approaches. Um, but there's also you know new needs that have to be addressed, and so I think that that's going to be a very interesting area to go through. And then another aspect of that beyond just the interfaces is, you know, once you have all these different, uh, you know, heterogeneous components, hardware and software, you put them together and, you know, things don't go entirely as planned, you know, there's some unexpected behaviors and such, you know, how do you, test or anticipate or specify you know the ex expected behaviors you know system validation uh design verification uh at, at this scale um particularly if you have you know multiple different parties involved i you know i take an accelerator from one company and you know another component from a, a university etc put them all together you know sometimes even with a, a well you know uh, defined specification people still read the specification in different ways. And, you know, how, how do you guarantee that? Or, you know, guarantee is probably too strong a word, but, you know, what, what can we do collectively from a, a methodology and a science standpoint to make these systems, you know, robust and as successful as possible? So I think, you know, there's, you know, I, I don't have the, the answers uh, to all of those questions, but, you know, these are the types of things that, you know, I think many of us do, do need to, to think about going forward. All this makes me sort of think about like the general value of understanding like large system design, right? Because earlier in one of your in your answer, you mentioned something about cell phones and 
so I know when I was at Qualcomm um, that we had, you know, these are small systems, but they had lots and lots of different accelerators across them and lots of different interfaces and lots of different ways for things to discuss. And then there was a lot of discussion internally about, you know, how are we going to model this and how do we, we've got these siloed systems and what about the full system end-to-end -end design? And I imagine, you know, in all the work that you've done with Exascale, you know, that's very similar where Exascale systems are enormous. You've got lots of different parts and probably spanning lots of different as you said, even organizations that are coming together, you know, some IP from here, some IP from there, contributors from here and there, everywhere. And so across all these, there's it's a large system with lots of interconnecting components. I know you just said you didn't have all the answers, but maybe you can speak a little bit to particularly your experience with Exascale, which is one of the things we want to focus on today, is like how you bring something, you know, that's so large scale that the word Exa is in the word to make it all work together. Yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting, you know, a ton of fun on, on that journey, right? Because when we started off on this Exascale endeavor, it was at this point, you know, well over uh, 10 years ago, I guess, getting close to, to 12 years at, at this point, where, you know, we're trying to predict what this machine a decade later should look like, you know, with, you know, whatever we could see our, our crystal balls would tell us uh, back in the, the early 2010s. And that spanned, you know, a lot of different aspects. Um, you know, the evaluation type of components that you mentioned is just one one piece of it, right? Uh, but but it's a critical part, right? Because you know, one one can dream up all manner of different things, and if you don't have a way to evaluate it and to cull down the massive design space, you're just going to you know flounder and spin in circles, uh, you know, chasing the the latest you know shiny thing. And so, what we did was it was kind of a, a multi-pronged, you know, kind of multi-resolution type of approach. You know, early on we looked at some macroscopic trends, macroscopic projections, just you know, where did we think silicon technology would be, you know, 10 years into the future, given various projections of you know, Moore's law slowing down, things of that sort. Where do we project memory technologies to be, both in terms of you know capacity and bandwidth and energy efficiency, so on and so forth. Uh, so you know, we looked at multiple different axes and made our best guesses and then came up with a vision for, okay, well, how could we conceivably get to these exascale uh, requirements, right? And exascale requirements is more than just raw compute, more than just raw flops. You know, I think one of the aspects that the U.S. Department of Energy really put into sharp focus from the get-go was that, you know, this is not just a benchmark machine, right? Certainly achieving, you know, top position on the you know, top 500 list was a uh, important, you know, milestone that I think everyone, uh, you know, certainly wanted to see. But at the end of the day, these machines are being used for real science, right? The, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the scientists working across the U.S. national labs, as well as many international partners that get uh, access to compute time on these supercomputers, you know, they're not sitting there doing, you know, matrix multiplications all day uh, for for uh, benchmark scores, right? They're running, you know, computational uh, experiments to try to, you know, discover new things about the universe, you know, new, you know, chemicals, all, all manner of science. And so delivering a machine that, you know, could actually address performance for real workloads was uh, a very, you know, it was a common theme throughout the entire program from, from day one. And I think that was also very useful from the AMD perspective of, you know, thinking about a machine and not just 
the speeds and feeds and you know how many instructions per cycle you can crunch through your bandwidths but really thinking about again uh as even they mentioned sort of that the end-to-end -end thinking of like what are we trying to accomplish right and and then so you know having set you know an initial vision for okay now how do we get there what are the important aspects of this machine again it's not just in terms of the top level numbers but what are other characteristics that you know we want to ideally see from it like it, it can handle you know irregular access patterns of different sorts it's you know we have to think about that the programming model for the the scientists who you know for many of them you know programming is actually an annoyance right they want to do science they want to sit there debugging code and so you know you think about all these aspects how do you put it together and then we sort of went through a a kind of a multi-resolution, you know, different tiers of evaluation, right? Some of the evaluation was almost really more kind of spreadsheet level, like, you know, we idealistically, you put together all the numbers, do we get to, you know, the types of memory capacities or bandwidths that we want to get to? Do you get to anywhere close to an exaflop of compute? Does this thing require, you know, 16 uh, nuclear power plants to uh, turn this machine on, or can you actually get this to work within a reasonable power budget? You know, so some of that stuff, order of magnitude, you could really do kind of just, you know, pencil and paper practically. But then at different levels for different aspects of the design, we use a wide variety of different tools. In some cases, you're dealing with uh, you know, program analysis and, you know, going through uh, kind of more traditional profiling of application behaviors, both on, you know, CPUs and GPUs. In other cases, you're going down another layer to, you know, cycle level simulators or system emulation. In other cases, you're doing your know, network simulation. And so for the different aspects, just necessarily given the complexity of the problem, we have to decompose and focus on the different parts. And that, you know, helps you divide and conquer the problem from a evaluation standpoint. On the other hand, you know, it does introduce some challenges as you try to roll these things back up together, because ultimately none of these parts are standalone. Right. They all have to come together into a, a full system. And so then you can sort of like start bringing it back together through a, a mix of methodologies. Uh, and some of our earlier exascale papers that we published in the computer architecture conferences, we indeed, you know, showed some initial projections where those projections are coming from a very diverse mix of of inputs you know indeed some of these things are you know, application analysis some of these are from you know, profile data some of it's from cycle level simulation and that's where you end up having to rely a bit on kind of the experience and intuition of some of the more uh you know senior folks that have you know been designing and building supercomputers for a long time where they have a sense of okay if you put these things together yeah these kind of projections do make sense or yeah that seems really odd if you you know we're we're seeing these kind of results you know we don't expect things to scale in that as you know in that way in this particular fashion and that may require further analysis digging in to what's going on you know sometimes you find out oh okay you know we had a, a misaligned assumptions about something and sometimes you discover something like hey actually this is different and indeed it may perform better in this fashion or whatever Wow, that's a really great detailed answer on how to sort of build up a large system from starting starting small and at the lower layers and kind of like leafing up to a big, you know, a big picture of how everything goes. So one of the things that I thought you said that was really interesting, Gabe, was about relying on the sort of intuition and the experience of people who've been there along for a long time. My recollection is when I first joined AMD, you know, many years ago, even before the Exascale stuff started, um, just being 
sort of in awe of the people who were able to imagine projecting, you know, roadmap things four, five, six, seven, eight years ahead and just being able to anticipate what they felt like was coming down the pipe. And so, you know, in putting together that kind of a team at AMD, you know, it's been an inc incredibly successful long running project. I'm curious to see about A, like how you sort of project forward, you know, presuming you're one of those people who was like doing the projections for you and like Mike Shelty and other people that I remember looking forward. And then also, you know, how and when you decide you're going to say pivot, like, oh, we might've been a little bit wrong about this one or something has changed, you know, sort of keep the shift moving forward because that's the hard part, right? You wanna, you wanna be able to look far enough ahead to do something meaningful that's, that's, uh, in advance, but at the same time, you have to be able to adjust. Yep, that's a great question. Or just a, a couple of key aspects. It sounds very uh, Spanish acquisition like. Um, so first is that you have to be in communication with other folks. As researchers, we cannot live in an ivory tower and just come up with our own big thoughts and drink, you know, coffee and eat donuts all day. And you know, a critical aspect of our exascale research program was that we were sharing our ideas, getting feedback from the folks on the product teams, the folks you know, planning our roadmaps, getting you know good critical uh, input on you know things that they thought might pan out, things that they thought were risky, things that they thought we were you know way off in left field on. And what also goes with that is you need to have a team that can put ego aside. Right, that we don't get too married or emotionally wedded to our ideas. Right, these are you know kind of the ideas we came up with, but if we get good feedback, we get new input. Hey, you have to be willing to throw things out and take that input and shift and pivot, as you said. Right, and we, you know, the fact that yeah, I thought I had a good idea, just you know, seemed really cool to me, and then now I found out that okay, wait, that doesn't make sense anymore. I have to be you know, very objective and just take that information in and just, okay, that's great input. Let's go figure out what's the next thing we should do. What's, you know, how do we adjust this? How do we address those concerns? And so part of the success, I believe for our program is that you know, we had a, a phenomenal team, not just from a technical standpoint, but in terms of the personalities and, and the lack of ego and the really this shared vision of how do we collectively uh, build something successful, right? And that, objective was shared not just with the research team but you know, with the, the product folks as well that you know we all collectively wanted to see this happen we wanted amd to be successful and so there was not really like research versus the product team us trying to sell them on something them trying to you know pull us back or whatever this really is about coming together as you know one company is one effort to figure out you know what what's the best way forward for this right I, um, and so that also, I think made it really fun, right? Because we just at that once you kind of establish that kind of culture, you no longer have that fear, really. I think of throwing out what may be crazy ideas that other people are in some other context might you know laugh you out of the room for, right? And you know, I think you know perhaps it's a you know, speaking from a position of you know privilege of seniority and such, uh, but you know I'm I've hit that point in my career where I've really don't care, right? I mean, I mean, the sense that I can say, you know, I can put out ideas and if it's not a good idea, if someone has a good reason why what I suggested doesn't work, like that's okay. It's okay. I'll move on to, you know, I'll move on to the next thing, right? In general, what I, I feel like is that being wrong is actually a good thing, 
right? Because if you're wrong, like why were you wrong? It's you had some intuition, some thinking that led you down a particular path. And when you're when you find out you're wrong, that meant that there was something in your your intuition, something about your assumptions that wasn't correct. And it's a learning opportunity, right? So if I'm wrong, I'm gonna learn. And in some sense, if I'm not wrong on occasion, that means I'm not I'm not learning enough. And and also especially as researchers, that may be indicative that I'm not pushing aggressively enough either, right? You know, part of the role of a research lab is to, you know, push the envelopes to try to push on the frontiers. And if you're being too safe, you're actually not really doing your job, I think, at least in the industrial research uh, context, right? And it, it's a careful balance, right? You can't go too crazy. Otherwise, you know, you come up with, you know, ideas that no one will ever, ever use. I think there's a, you know, there's a natural, uh, pull factor that that brings you back to reality right because you you know so long as you're learning and taking in the new information your ideas are going to get refined they're going to get better and they're not going to go you know they're not going to continue diverging out into uh you know some area that's not going to be useful right that's a very germane point on the importance of culture and being able to sort of fearlessly explore ideas or rec recognize when things are when your assumptions are wrong then pivot and you know take your learnings forward and move to a different problem. I think that's a very very important point in large teams, especially. Uh, I wanted to expand on some of the uh, you know I think a lot of the retrospectives that you've written, both on the exascale computing journey and some of the other things that you've done, uh, have been pretty refreshing about you know the lessons that you've learned, what were the initial assumptions, how the field overall has evolved. Because when you start out, you don't know how things are going to evolve, both on the technical front and perhaps on other fronts like the commercial realities as well for various technologies. So uh, I wanted to dig a little deeper on, you know, maybe memory technologies in particular, since you've had experience with multiple kinds of memory technologies and have seen different trajectories for them. So ranging from, you know, 3D die stacked uh, DRAM, you know, that eventually went into like hybrid cube or HPM and things like that, uh, to other technologies that have maybe not panned out to a commercially successful point yet, like NVRAM, you know, phase change memory or resistive memories and so on. Can you maybe sort of uh, compare and contrast the journey and considerations with each of these uh, maybe lend some flavor on you know how you were thinking about the problems what are some ground realities and how that sort of shaped your perspective on memory technologies and other technologies in general and how they intersect with you know both research and product roadmaps sure i think there's a, a couple general trends we could probably draw out from this and just thinking back much of my 3d related research started back when i was still academic faculty i think especially in academia you have the the license perhaps the the charter really to to push even more aggressively than one can in industry and at the same time you know frankly speaking your levers for direct commercial impact are are far weaker from from academia or right? you, you publish papers and try to influence the thinking of, of other people you know from that perspective early on i didn't worry too much about the commercial it's not the commercial viability of any of these technologies, but it's more about the timeline of it, right? So you, you, know, you talk to the folks in the industry, you get you know, the best information you can to have the best assumptions for the, the research. And then from there, I would encourage, you know, especially academic researchers to you know, not worry too much about, well, okay, you know, is this going to impact you know, industry you know, in two years, five years, seven years, et cetera? Because there's just too many factors that go into it. I think what's important is that the you know, kind of the way I approach a lot of this is to come up with ideas that, you know, assuming this technology hits a point of maturity, then these ideas would 
you know, allow one to you know, make better use, hopefully, of that technology in, in, in some fashion. And, you know, maybe it was, you know, a little bit of wishful thinking as an academic, right? But, you know, I think part of the rationale was that if one can demonstrate, you know, additional you know, ideas, additional benefit of these new technologies, that may uh, motivate industry to try to accelerate the development of that technology uh, as well, right? I think from an um, you know, industrial standpoint, there is uh, still a similar theme, a similar approach in that with any kind of new technology that we may be looking at or considering, we, we do want to think broadly of, you know, how would we be able to maximize the value or competitive advantage we could get with this new capability? Um, you know, because it, it kind of goes, there's no, it's not like a one-way street. Because if you come up with that big new idea, indeed, that may motivate you know, the, the, the powers of that be to try to accelerate the availability of that capability, right? Um, on the other hand, if, you know, people aren't doing the research as aggressively enough, if everyone is waiting for, you know, uh, a memory technology to hit a certain point or whatever, then, you know, the, the natural kind of cadence of that progression or because of the investment made into that new technology, you know, may not be as great because they don't have that that big motivating factor of, oh, if we can get this to market, there's this, you know, 3x, 10x or whatever benefit, um, right? And so there's just a little bit of a, a give and take, right? And, you know, as a researcher, if you go, you know, too far and like the technology is still, you know, 25 years away, that's also a, a challenging sell as well. So, you know, there is a, a bit of a balance to be had there. My overall thinking approach, it, it's been very interesting watching these different technologies develop over time because, from the perspective of a technologist, you know, and things you've thought about and worked on, like you want to see this stuff become reality, right? You want to see, uh, you know, whether it's a new memory device, 3D stacking, et cetera. And, you know, these are all things that, you know, you've worked on, you've thought about, and it's just like, wouldn't it be cool to see that in a real product, right? And you know, some of the 3D uh, stuff, I mean, it's taken um, nearly, you know, two decades for us to really see these things uh, come into kind of full commercial capability. But on the other hand, as you know, someone who works for you know AMD as a shareholder, you know, and I think this is true for you know all of you know most of the companies out there. If we can make use of our you know existing capabilities and we you know can delay the adoption of some risky new uh, technology for another generation, it's uh, I think always a worthwhile question to you know, consider. Well, you know, should we actually take on that risk of bringing on that new technology now today? Right. And so there's that, there's that timing question of, you know, the, these new technologies may, in fact, have you know, great merits, but we might not need to do it, you know, right today at this moment. Right. And that's, I think, just the, the types of questions that uh, are you know, being asked, you know, by you know, every, everyone in the industry at any point in time. You know, when when do you adopt when you introduce a, a new capability, a, a new feature, you know, is the market ready for it? Is the ecosystem ready for it? Um, and you know it's it's a it's a tricky thing. I think that's you know more in the the realm perhaps of folks with the, the MBAs and and whatnot, right? If you if you jump into the water first, you have uh, the first mover advantage. You get a head start over everyone else. But if you jump into water and the water is uh, shark infested, guess what? You're also the first one to get chewed up. So you know what's the the right strategy uh, for that? It's going to be different in every case. But bringing it back to the research side, right? These are a lot of those things are yeah kind of well outside the realm of what your typical 
uh, you know, technical researcher is really going to think too deeply about. And like, you should have some awareness of, of these things, right? That's just, oh, I have a great idea. Then everyone's going to you know, come to me and uh, everything's going to be great. Everyone's going to adopt my idea and run with it, right? That's not you know, typically how uh, new technologies <laughs> get developed. Um, but at the same time, especially as an academic researcher, I think if you try to read the tea leaves too much, it's going to be a kind of a distraction. And many of those things are kind of outside of your control. And you really should, in my opinion, focus on the technical innovation. What are the new ideas? What are new capabilities? What, you know, what new can we collectively do with this? And that, if anything, I think would help accelerate the adoption of new technologies faster than, you know, the, the, the business concerns. I and mean, the business concerns obviously remain, but if there's sufficient motivation, if there's sufficient benefit or value, I think you know industry will find a way to uh, to capitalize on that. That was really interesting discussion because it sounds like you know you're you're basically discussing the chicken and egg issue that we have with new new technology adoption, right? Is it is it sort of the push pull where the researchers are saying, hey, look, if you do this, it can be 10x, and then of course industry will come by and say like, well, after you put in some reality, it'll become 1.8x or whatever, but then. There's, there's that part where there's like, hey, if you do this, it'll be this great new thing. And on the other hand, there's the whole, you know, Henry Ford's quote, you know, are we going to build better horses or are we going to start building cars? And so there's that question of like, when are, when do you make the jump to making cars and then stop like, I don't know, feeding your horses better food or whatever. So that whole, that whole discussion there, that was like so interesting because from a researcher's perspective, particularly a younger one, you know, there, there's only sort of like the pro immediate problem around you. And as you get more senior, as you presumably, or as you are now, you know, you begin to have to think about market forces potentially more and more because then, then your impact uh, is sort of dependent on whether or not things really get adopted, right? And so this kind of ties into the next question, which is you know, you're at AMD Research, which is actually a relatively new lab and which has been phenomenally successful in going from, you know, handful of people 12, 13 years ago to being this like sort of very effective research organization that has close ties to its product team as well as it had a lot of research impact. And so I guess what I wonder in an era where research labs sort of ebb and flow and kind of struggle between being those researchers out there who can't get any product people to listen to them or being too in bed with product people and not really doing anything particularly far reaching and out there. You know, how do you feel like AMD research labs in particular has sort of gone from this tiny little group to this really sort of research powerhouse that's been really effectual from both the research as well as the product impact standpoint? I think a big part of that is always being clear with what the purpose of the lab is, right? You know, from, from the get-go, you know, the research organization was focused on, you know, the fact, you know, we were very honest and truthful about it, right? We are part of a for-profit company and what we do ultimately in some form or another needs to deliver value back to the company, right? Is, you know, for each individual, for the organization as a whole, are we providing more value to the company than it's costing us to uh, keep us employed? I mean, that's kind of <laughs> the, what it all comes down to. But that that honesty of your role in the organization, I think, helped to really provide the, the focus that, you know, a lot of research, it's almost, you know, cliche that 
for you know you tell this for a lot of you know PhD students and others is that you know defining the problem is often the hard part. You know, how do you select the right research problem? And once you've defined the problem, you know, people are smart, they can come up with solutions, they can innovate, right? And a lot of the times coming up with the right problems is uh, is at the first, you know, almost unspoken step zero. You know, having clear direction for the organization provides us a framework for prioritization of you know, all the different ideas that we could pursue, all the different research projects that one could imagine. You know, we don't have enough bandwidth to go after every possible thing, right? I mean, that's true whether in academia or, or in industry, right? You know, no one has, uh, or you know, most of the time, most professors don't want to have a lab of you know 30 students. It's, uh, you know, we, we all have enough meetings as it is. And so, you know, how do you prioritize? How do you go about you know, choosing where to focus your effort, where to make your investments. You know, clear direction in terms of having to do research that, you know, will provide value, will have impact uh, to the company, I think is central to, you know, why the, the lab has been successful. And that said, as you mentioned, like, you know, it's, it's a balance, right? You don't want to be in a position where you're effectively just additional engineering resources for the product team, right? That you, you know, as a research organization, you do need to be looking further down, uh, you know, down the field. And you, you do need to have that autonomy to, you know, take some risks and, and to push it further out. And so I think, you know, part of it is having good leadership that has been able to walk that line and strike that balance, right? That, you know, we have to have work that's not just ivory tower, pie in the sky, you know, uh, interesting, you know, intellectual exploration. Um, but at the same time, you can't be really just doing almost, you know, just advanced development for, you know, some features that the, the product team perhaps, you know, didn't have the, the resources to, to pursue. And that, I think, it ebbs and flows over time as well, right? And I think that's where, you know, the leadership, both in terms of the, the management as well as the, the technical leaders and them having a good relationship where you know management can get the right technical input they can get the right business input everyone can talk to each other again kind of in very ego free just you know what's the lay of the land what are the you know best decisions for the organization and to be able to come up with those decisions of you know where do we place our bets you know at the end of the day you know we are still speculating it's you know it's the future we're doing research uh, but you have to put the chips down somewhere uh, and hopefully you know we've collectively brought in as much information together to you know, maximize our expected return. Now that, that was a good perspective on you know, how you think about research labs within the context of an industrial setting and having a very clear sense of purpose and vision coupled with you know, a healthy culture that's uh, ego-free and transparent makes a lot of difference. Uh, maybe this is a good time to sort of wind the clocks back. Uh, since you were talking about AMD research, can you tell our listeners, uh, you know, how did you get to AMD research? What was your journey like starting from the early days? because you've both seen academia and industry. Maybe you can talk about the entire journey. Sure, this is, um, I've been very fortunate in that I've uh, had you know, just a lot of different opportunities along the way. And I think one of the interesting aspects is that, and a lesson for some of the younger folks is to not be afraid or uh, you'll be afraid, you know, how you feel is how you feel. But despite perhaps being afraid, being unsure, uh, still, taking some of those chances on you know unexpected paths and routes uh and because i think my my career has taken a couple weird turns uh, over the years really really starting off from the beginning you know, after um you know initially when i was finishing up my phd 
I kind of finished off a little bit weird on the job market cycle. And, you know, I'd been originally wanting to pursue uh, an academic uh, position, which is you know, what, what did happen. But my first time around on the, the job cycle, I actually ended up with one interview for a position that might or might not appear. Uh, it was a speculative interview from a department that was hoping to get uh, a slot created that year. And in the end, they didn't get the slot. And so I had, you know, basically uh, zero uh, academic job offers at the, the end of that first cycle. You know, kind of thankfully or the way it worked out was that, you know, since my, uh, you know, my PhD graduation or completion was like a little bit off cycle, that I was able to kind of just, you know, stay on as a student for a while and, you know, maintain my health insurance and things of that sort. And then was able to reapply the following year. And, you know, I had some other, you know, papers and things in the pipeline at the time, but, you know, the second time around, things were uh, more successful. And so, you know, one thing is that, you know, certainly we, we all face uh, rejections and, you know, failures of sorts, or as people like to say, deferred success. And, you know, if it's something that you believe in, you want to go for, you know, stick with it, go for it. You know, I, uh, again, maybe a little bit of uh, survivor bias uh, in, in these comments here, because, you know, I was you know, lucky enough to get uh, get an offer on the, the second time around. Uh, but in terms of kind of unexpected routes, one of the things that came up was I had already, you know, received my, my offer and actually, uh, you know, for going to Georgia Tech. And at ISCA in 2002, uh, this was up in Anchorage, Alaska, I just, you know, happened to meet this guy, Brian Black, who, you know, those who are familiar with die stacking kind of know him as, you know, the, the, the godfather of uh, 3D die stacking. And, you know, he was working at Intel at the time and, you know, he said, hey, you just come down, work for, work for me for a year, you know, learn a little bit more about, you know, things on the industry side or whatever. And, you know, basically that sounds interesting. So I was like, okay, that wasn't what I was planning at all. But, you know, I went back to Georgia Tech and asked them like, hey, like, is this like something we do? Can we like defer the start of my you know, academic, you know, career? And, you know, it was a little bit complicated in terms of the, the, the paperwork and everything else, but we basically managed to come up with an arrangement where, you know, I basically joined Georgia Tech and went on a leave of absence on, on the very first day. Uh, it was kind of funny because I had already then started, you know, once we made the arrangements, I'd already started at Intel and I had to fly back to, you know, uh, Atlanta to like sit through orientations on like 401k programs and things like that. Sorry. <laughs> but the the thing was that like it wasn't like a normal path to, at the time i think it's become a little bit more normal now but the lesson that i learned was like don't be afraid to ask right because if you don't ask you're not gonna get it and so i asked and we found a way to you know uh work through the situation and we got to work and and this you know and that was pivotal right because it's you know at intel was actually where i first became exposed to 3d die stacking right and honestly just dumb luck I was at the right place at the right time, having to be exposed to the right people in the right and you know the these these new ideas. And you know, part of it is that you know when you have the opportunity, you got to take advantage of it as well, right? So I kind of you know subsequently after going back to Georgia Tech, you know, that became a cornerstone of a lot of my the research program, the research agenda I put together. But you know, I honestly got incredibly lucky that. I just happened to be in the circumstance, but that circumstance also happened because I was willing to, you know, take this weird detour on my, you know, on my career. This is, you know, year one of my career post PhD and already you know, kind of going uh, off the, the planned path. Uh, but you know, that 
can provide you know new opportunities, new things that you learn about. Um, another example of that, you know, af after several years and that's Georgia Tech, there's a new program that uh, was just being started. It was a dual master's program between Georgia Tech and Korea University in Seoul. And they needed a couple of faculty to go to uh, Korea for one semester to teach in person. And so, you know, it was, they're kind of looking around and a little bit desperate to figure out like, you know, who, who to send. And, you know, they came and asked if I'd be willing. And, you know, I had some, you know, hesitations, right? You know, I was, I was, uh, you know, my, my partner would, you know, still be working, you know, from Atlanta back at home. I'd be over in another country for, for four months where I didn't speak the language or anything, but, it was also just kind of new and different. And so at a certain point I said, you know, like, well, why not? Right. Like when is this kind of a opportunity going to come up again? And so I did it. That then opened up again, just sort of by luck, circumstance, whatever you want to call it, a variety of you know new opportunities as well. Right. I think on one hand, from the academic side of things, that basically was the the start the first step that eventually led me to actually being you know co-general chair for ISCA 2016 in in Seoul Korea um like that just would not have ever have happened uh, had I not spent those four months in Korea I've just got to jump in here Gabe and so being general chair of an ISCA sounds like a tough job so I'm going to assume that you regret going to Korea because <laughs> if you hadn't, you wouldn't have been general chair and had to go through all that stress, right? <laughs> it's, I think different people, you know, everyone's different, right? And so like, yeah, general chair was a ton of work, but for me, it was also fairly rewarding. Um, this computer architecture community has been very good to me over the years and it felt good to be able to contribute back and, you know, give something back. Um, it was definitely a lot of work but it was very different so i mean i know some folks especially a lot of academics you know look upon general chair as something that they would you know not touch with a a 10-foot pole because there's practically zero that's technical about it to some extent, on top of that, get... you did it not in your home locale like most general chairs do it in their home locale you did it on the other side of the world which probably adds a whole other level of complexity to it which i'm just like in awe that you did well, I mean, as with everything, and this is, a, I think, a common theme, right, is that you have to have a good team, right? Everything we do, whether it's research, whether it's putting on a, a conference, having a good, good team, having the right relationships and trust among the, the team members is you know, absolutely critical, right? That could not have happened without having had a, a phenomenal uh, co-chair. Uh, my my co-chair, uh, Professor uh, Sung Woo Min, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple years ago from cancer, um, but he was just a, a phenomenal uh, partner, and you know we were able to again have very you know open uh, discussions. Uh, you know he actually came you know not traditionally from the computer architecture community, it was more from the embedded systems side. And so we have a lot of you know good discussions in terms of you know you know conference expectations and you know how you know what types of events and venue styles and things of that sort. And you know he's very opening open to listen about how we did things on the ISCA side. But there's a lot of things that were you know local about how they do things in Korea that you know I could not come in and assume I knew how things should be done. Right. And you know, both of us, you know, being able to put egos aside and really, you know, again, thinking about like how do we, you know, we, we both had a shared vision of, you know, how do we put together the best ISCA ever, right? 
you know, I don't know if we did or not, you know, I'll let, you know, the, the attendees uh, vote on that perhaps, but, you know, that's, you know, we kind of, you know, again, you want to start off with with a, a vision for what you want to accomplish, right? And once you have that vision, then you can kind of drill down and work through, you know, what we want to do from a technical standpoint, what we want to do in terms of the events, in terms of venue, about the experience. For a lot of uh, attendees, this is the first time they'd ever been to Korea. What do we want to, you know, showcase and highlight about the country? And we just kind of just drill down through all of the different uh, details. And you know, for me, the way I looked at it and, you know, why it wasn't just, you know, some you know, horrible burden, but it was actually, you know, I think somewhat uh, fun and rewarding was that I viewed it as, hey, this, you know, the computer architecture community is, you know, at least from an academic perspective, you know, my home community. I'm now in a position where I could throw a giant party for, you know, 700 of my best friends and I don't have to pay for it. Uh, you know, what, what, what can we do, right? And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. kind of the, the way I, I viewed and approached it. And it's like, you know, how do we, you know, make sure that you know, this is a, a great event, you know, uh, technically, uh, but also that it, it's memorable that it, it, you know, part of it is the community building, right? We want people, you know, especially a lot of the students, there's maybe this is their first time come to a conference, right? Maybe they went to another conference that, you know, they, you know, didn't enjoy as much for some reason, or whatever. And they were, you know, maybe thinking about, you know, changing to another area or something, you know, how do we give everyone a great experience so that, you know, yeah, you know, this is where I want to be, right? I want to be a computer architect. This is, you know, and if, I have to bribe them with some good food or something like that. Hey, that that's okay, right? Uh, the, the, you know, human human resource development. You know, if it goes through the stomach, that that works. You know, <laughs> I've heard but, that's you know, how that, they turned around micro in the early days, right? They made sure they had good food. <laughs> well, I mean, you go to any like college recruiting event or you know anything else, right? You no, know, just you know, food food features uh, prominently, right? The the students uh, tend to respond to free food, and then once you've trained them, that habit doesn't seem to go away. <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to ask you a little more, Gabe, because, you know, so I've, I've known you a long time. And one of the things that I've always noticed about you that's kind of remarkable is like, I've never seen you perturbed. Like, I've never seen you angry or perturbed or anything like that. And one of the enduring themes through you talking about with us today has been about like being able to put ego aside, you know, having shared vision, a, a clear vision for what what is going ahead. So one of the things that I've always thought about you as you've sort of progressed through your career is just like you make it look very easy right you've always made everything look very easy that's one of the things that i remember when i worked with you like a long time ago at amd is just that you have this talent for being able to just say like okay this is what we're trying to do this is how we frame the problem we need to answer this this and this and then you just go do it and then like you know you just kind of it's just, it seems very self-evident as so, if somebody's watching you do it and so it seems like for the progression of your career which you know you've you've been very successful is, you know, being able to put ego aside, being able to construct good teams with gold, good culture, um, having clear visions. And this thing, which just I'm observing about you is like, you're this kind of unflappableness. Can you talk a little bit about what you think it is that has led you to this? Cause I, rem I also remember when I first met you, you were already faculty at Georgia tech and let's just say that your behavior, I thought you were still a grad student cause you were still like, fun and easygoing and all this stuff. I did, I had no idea you were already a professor, which meant like you'd already done your time with Brian Black too. Like you were a couple years out from graduation. And I was like, this guy is definitely a grad student. And then you were a professor and I was like, oops, <laughs> I made a wrong assumption. So maybe, you know, I don't know, just going back over your career from like a, 
how you manage yourself over the course of career to, to get to the point where you are. It sounds very clear that you haven't chased career accolades. You've just sort of chased what interests you and then the career accolades have come. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, do I have my stuff together and, you know, unflappable or whatever, there's, you know, I think it's really important for, for everyone, especially for the younger folks, but this doesn't go away with time, I don't think, is to you know, always recognize that what you see of other people is very different from what they are experiencing, right? Each and every one of us has a mask, has a filter, right? You don't, you know, whatever, uh, whatever things that didn't work out for me, whatever challenges I had, you know, it's typical human nature that you, you know, shield and you filter these things out from everyone else around you, right? And so, you know, were there challenges along the way? Absolutely, right? Uh, do I go necessarily advertising all of them? Probably not, as you know, most people <laughs> tend not to, right? There's this kind of this old saying that you know, when you look at everyone else, what you see is the the movie trailer, right? You see all the highlights, the big you know Michael Bay explosions or whatever. When you look at yourself, you see the blooper reel, right? You see all the outtakes, right? And it's actually one of those things that I, I recognize this at some point, and that recognition alone, I think, was very useful in terms of you know not getting to shook up about you know challenges and things of that sort because when you look at everyone around you everyone else looks like they're so successful and everything else right but then when i realize that okay well that's because they're not showing me their outtakes either I'm, I'm not showing them theirs and so why should they show me <laughs> uh you know it's that's only fair right um but once you realize that there's that kind of this asymmetric information access about what you know about yourself versus what you know about others it's easier to be easier on yourself really right and so i think that helped me in terms of you know some level of that uh, you call it unflappableness i don't think that's quite uh, accurate but you know some emotional stability perhaps right in terms of just worrying about you know what's going on in, in one's job in one's career or one's research whatever it may be certainly everything that we do is also viewed through a, a lens of uh, survivor bias right for every you know paper that i've published for every you know project that's been successful you know there is a gigantic heaping pile of rejected papers of ideas that crash and burn and everything else and you know i don't put them up front and center and like neither do most other people right but again you know we all see the stuff that makes it we don't see all the stuff that you know that didn't make it but are still important stepping stones to get to that point right of, you know how do you refine and adapt your ideas what are you, you know, learning along the way and another kind of thing that i've learned over time and it's one thing to you know, intellectually understand it, it's another thing to be able to emotionally accept it, is being able to recognize what things do you have control over, what things are outside of your control, right? Because basically to get upset, get worked up, anxious, whatever, about the things that are outside of your control is pretty much by definition a waste of energy, right? Because they're outside of your control. Anything you do is not going to affect that. And learning to recognize those situations, those circumstances, it's taken years and obviously, you know, no one perfects this and it's something that I still work on, but you know, learning to recognize those situations and then be able to take a step back and sort of to emotionally diffuse yourself a bit. And then, the, then rechannel your energy on the things that you can do something about, that you can be productive about. You know, that has also helped, but that's, you know, this is something that's taken, you know, at this point decades worth of practice and you know, obviously, you know, still not, uh, entirely there. It's you know, I don't think something that anyone can perfectly uh, achieve in a lifetime, but one can continue continually improve. So I think you know, that's also been just kind of a a practice that I, I've kept in mind uh, over time. 
another, I think, really important aspect of this, and again, I think it's important for some of the, the younger folk. Yeah, you know, again, it's related to that whole that the bad analogy about the the movie, you know, outtakes versus the highlight reels. But what often comes up in these you know types of discussions is a whole like imposter syndrome type of thing as well, right? And you look around, you look at all like the senior people, and like, oh my god, like you know, like like you never see any of them having imposter syndrome, right? But the fact of the matter is, everyone does. There's again, but we don't show it, right? That's buried in our our outtakes reel, and. Initially, it's one of those things earlier on in your career, I think, you know, kind of hits you a, a bit harder, right? You're you're thrust into new situations and you're just like, oh, my God, like, why did they ask me to do this? I have no clue what's going on. I'm going to fail miserably, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like all the, all the standard uh, imposter syndrome thoughts, you know, creep in. But one thing that I've learned over time and uh, it, it's helped with these types of situations is that the reason you have imposter syndrome, the reasons make you strong, but one of the factors of having imposter syndrome is that you're actually being put into new situations, right? It's because you're being challenged. You're, you know, people trust you and are giving you opportunities to grow, right? And so it's kind of flip side of it. If you never feel imposter syndrome, you may be stagnating, right? You may be in a, in a place where you're not getting the opportunities, right? And so to me, imposter syndrome has now become a somewhat positive thing, or at least I tell myself that, right? Because it means, okay, I'm in a position where I'm going to do something new. I'm going to learn, right? That someone trusts me with something new, right? So like, it's actually a sign that things are going well if you you know have uh, imposter syndrome, right? And again, I think a little bit of this may be just me me trying to convince myself uh, <laughs> to you know, make the situation you know a little bit easier to handle. Uh, but I think there there's some truth to that, right? Like if it you know if you're just always comfortable, that means you probably are not growing on the trajectory that you potentially could be going at. So I mean, a lot of it also you know, comes back to your your original question. You know, how do you you know keep it all in check and whatever? It's like you, know, you don't always, <laughs> you don't always. But you know, I think you know most of us have learned to to filter and uh, to you know at least hide it out a little bit. Right? That's just human nature. You know, but but that said, you know there are ways to improve how one handles it uh, over time and how to focus your energy on the things that will be you know, most productive that you do have some control over. And I think that's, you know, that's worked reasonably well-ish for, for myself over the years. Yeah, that's great. Thanks a lot for that perspective, Gabe, and uh, also very valuable words of wisdom, I'm sure, for you know, young researchers and people further along in their career. Speaking about you know, focusing your energy into the future and so on, Maybe uh, can uh, end on you know what's on the horizon for you, you know uh, what's your vision both on the technical side and maybe also in terms of you know how do we build up our community further because that's one of the things that you've been really good at sort of mentoring and community building. So both on the technical side and the community side, what's on the horizon for you? What is exciting for you? What would you like us to see more uh, do uh, do more of? Yeah, I mean, one of the things from from technical side, and I think the computer architecture community has been, you know, pretty good at this. And you know, I really want to encourage, uh, you know, especially those in in positions of you know, whether it's you know program committees or you know funding, uh, you know, research grant proposals, things of that sort, is to continue to keep a broad mind, a broad definition of what computer architecture is. Right, I think we've had. You know everything from the traditional, you know, CPU microarchitecture all the way up to the, you know, data centers and now you know machine learning systems and you know all, all manner of different things. And you know, keeping that very broad perspective and a very you know, broad or loose definition on what is a computer, you know, what is architecture, has been very 
good for this community. It's allowed us to grow, to adapt. The, the technology keeps changing at, at an incredibly uh, fast pace. And if we get you know, overly narrow, overly prescriptive of our definition of what is and isn't computer architecture, I think we, we risk you know, becoming irrelevant over time, right? If, if that definition misses, <laughs> you may you may miss the boat on some really uh, impactful areas that you know, other communities may, uh, may, may take a run with. And so, you know, I think from a from technical perspective, we want to keep our view very broad. Um, and as you know, we enter the the twilight of Moore's law, it's in some sense, you know, kind of exciting in that it now forces our hand into looking at a more diverse set of solutions, right? And we are working you know, across these different, you know, we talked about it earlier on of you know working across the stack, being more interdisciplinary. And you know, part of it is like you know, abstractions are not bad, right? Like they're good, they provide productivity. And traditional Moore's law, it was actually, I think, better to have, you know, cleaner uh, layers between everything where everyone can kind of work more focused in their layer of the stack. But we're now in a world where, you know, we cannot continue to scale traditional, you know, performance and capabilities of our systems in, in that approach, right? So we just have no no choice, really, that we, we have to work in a broader, more collaborative fashion. Uh, but that's, again, I think, it, very exciting. So many new things to to learn, right? I mean, when I joined AMD, you know, the the bad you know dad joke was that you know, I couldn't even spell HPC, right? And the the time I had with the Exascale program, you know, I I learned a ton through that that process, and a lot of what I learned was not perhaps what you would call traditional computer architecture, right? But that helped make my computer architecture, you know, thinking better. You know, for myself personally with all of the new stuff coming along and you know of course machine learning is you know taking up a lot of the attention but there's you know, all sorts of other fascinating topics that you know as you learn more about it expands your mind and can help you think of you know new solutions new approaches for even the more traditional problems that many people may be working on so you know i think from a from a technical perspective you know i, I do see you know increasing you know heterogeneity increasing you know end-to-end -end thinking of design you know even if you know my day job is still looking at CPU microarchitecture. I'm still thinking about these things in, in in a much broader context than I perhaps would have, you know, 20 years ago, where you know, everything was just, you know, how do we optimize you know, spec 95 or whatever. Um, you know, it, it, it's a different world, but you know, for the better. From a community standpoint, you know, I think it echoes a lot of that, right? We're going to see our community uh, continue to grow. I do think it's vitally important for the computer architecture community to continue to increase access to, you know, to everything we do to more and more people, right? It's, there is a, it's just very competitive in, in terms of trying to attract and recruit, you know, talent into our master's programs, our PhD programs, et cetera, right? There's a lot of people out there that, you know, are looking at many different other, you know, competing topics. Uh, there's a, a huge amount of competition with with the software world, even as software and hardware, you know, become more intertwined. And you know, to me, that says we have to you know maximize you know accessibility to to everyone, and that's you know across you know all all different types of factors, right? So there's all the dimensions that get you know the greatest attention in terms of you know gender and ethnic makeup, but there's also you know socioeconomic. Are we really you know 
making the the best usage of you know all of the different you know universities we have uh, across the planet. You know, there's talented people everywhere. Are we you know getting everyone into positions where they can you know succeed and contribute to what's just becoming harder and harder technical uh, challenges and problems? You know, it kind of goes back to the you know it comes to the ego you know comments, right? Like you know none of us should think so highly of ourselves that you know. This, you know, some small cadre of us are the ones who are going to come up with all the answers for, you know, the next 10 to 20 years of computing, right? The, the next big idea or, you know, the handful of, you know, medium ideas that, you know, often uh, actually make things move at a faster rate than the, the, the big ones, which sometimes can be more controversial. Um, you know, those could be coming from all over the place, right? From all over the planet, from all types of people. And so, you are know, really making sure that we can get that next generation of uh, computer architects, you know, identified and excited, fed if need be, um, you know, I think that that's in a really important aspect of of the community. Uh, the community is the people, right? We we are the community. And uh, last I checked, I keep getting older, so uh, we we need to recruit. You don't look at uh, younger. You folks. don't look at. That's only because I shaved my head. When I when I when I started when I started shaving, I discovered it stopped my aging, right? Because my my hairline keeps receding, the hair keeps turning gray, but no one can tell. Yeah, you look the same, and it's been over a decade, and you're indistinguishable from your early photos. Yeah, early photos, and how I remember you from the early days when I thought you were a grad student. I mean, this has been a really, really wonderful conversation, Gabe. I think we've spanned, you know, from technical to career to really sort of like a kind of deep thoughts about how to think about ourselves and the community. And so we really appreciate you coming to talk with us today. And we're so glad to have had you. Great. Thanks a lot. This is a ton of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Gabe. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you. And to our listeners, uh, thank you for being with us on the Computer Architecture Podcast. Till next time, it's goodbye from us.